0: Welcome. I'm Jennifer Braceres with the Independent Women's Law Center.
1: And I'm Inez Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. It's Thursday at 5 p.m. Uh, and so you are now at the bar. Cheers. Time to grab a cocktail, belly up to your laptop, and join our virtual
0: happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Today, I am drinking a glass of cheap red wine. How about you, Ignace?
1: Um, I've decided that since we're living through the decadent end of empire, or at least that's what it feels like, we might as well enjoy the upsides of decadence. so I have some champagne here. Sounds
0: good. Today, we are talking about the Orwellian University, and more specifically, attempts by university administrators to squelch free speech and due process on campus. Um, both the free speech and due
1: process rights of students and of faculty and staff. Um, yes, so we are going to be talking about what we're calling or the Orwellian University, right? as Jennifer said. um and and here's a little bit about what we mean to just to set up the concept of what we mean by Orwellian campus. Orwellian is an adjective describing a situation
0: idea or societal condition that George Orwell identified as being destructive to the welfare of a free and open society. It denotes an attitude and a brutal policy of draconian control by propaganda, surveillance, misinformation, denial of truth, doublethink, and manipulation of the past.
1: Well, that sounds uh, very scary, but unfortunately, a lot of those uh, descriptors seem like they are happening more and more on our campuses. We have a type of of, um, encouragement of sort of reporting each other. We have uh, a stray remark, for example, from a professor or student becoming the basis of them losing their job. Um, And then we have these sort of Kafkaesque procedures, right, around um, if one is accused of, of any kind of misconduct, particularly sexual misconduct on campus. There are these these caucus procedures that don't respect the traditional notions of, of um, due process that Americans have come to expect from our law. Um, Jennifer, what what would you have to to add to the sorry state of our campuses?
0: Well, I think another thing that was mentioned in that sort of dictionary definition of Orwellian that applies to um, the situation on campus today is is the redefining of words, right? So the whole n- concept of news speak, where you, you you use a word that people traditionally understand in a certain way, like equality or racism. Um, and you know there's sort of a general definition that we used to all accept of what that means. And now sort of the woke university has redefined those terms to mean something so specific or something completely different than what you know the general public used to think it meant um so we'll talk a little bit about that as well
1: yeah, and to, to help us talk about it in, in better detail and more detail, um, we are going to be having Samantha Harris join us uh, for this episode of At the Bar. Now, we're really excited to have Samantha. She's a partner at Alan Harris PLLC. Um, her practice is focused on exactly these issues of surrounding free speech and due process, both in K 12 and in higher education. Um, and and f- prior to founding Alan Harris, she spent 15 years at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which handles so many of these cases and has been. Such a, a um, incredible organization to back up what are what used to be primarily students, but now increasingly we see our faculty, even tenured professors, who run up against some aspect of this very restrictive Orwellian environment on campus. So, thank you so much for joining us, Samantha.
0: Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you, ladies. Welcome. What are you What are you drinking today at our virtual happy hour? So, I have a glass of <clears throat> mezcal with club soda and lime juice. So oh, Good for you. Well, cheers. Thank you for something joining us. a
2: little stiff. So I'm drinking in my closed office while my children run around the house. So, you know, this is
0: going to go really well. Yeah, <laughs> what, could go wrong? what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Well, thank you so much for being here. Maybe you could set the stage a little bit for us. Um, you know, the past year, most campuses have been closed to students. Um, but that hasn't stopped them, it seems, from sort of adopting a woke ideology and going after professors that, that dare to say the wrong thing. What have you found in your practice um, has been sort of the most salient issue on campuses during this very odd time when a lot of students aren't around?
2: Yeah, right now for my practice, it really has been this this issue of free speech as it pertains to, um, you know, what I will call the anti-racist ideology, and then the degree to which people support that. I mean, you know, um, as you both know, but maybe not everyone watching knows. Uh, you know, what I was doing when I started my practice was primarily campus Title IX work, um, you know, around this issue of due process, and that continues to be um, something very important. But, you know, through this combination of, you know, COVID, which obviously has left fewer students on campus, but also just this absolute sort of reckoning that's been going on in our society since last summer, since um, George Floyd's murder, uh, you know, there has just been this sort of sea change on campus. And it's not really, you know, it's something that has been percolating on campus for years. I mean, the ideas that are now sort of being applied, both in the university and in K to 12 education, and in, and even in our institutions you know corporations i think people probably saw you know the the coca-cola training slides about uh you know the problems with whiteness and, and things like that um these ideas originated in the university, but now it's, they they have really sort of reached their zenith sort of in terms of their influence in the university. And, you know, the degree to which people who not only disagree with the ideology, but even question it, um, are facing discipline and and intrusive investigations is really alarming. I mean, it it really feels sort of like a neo-McCarthyism on campus right now.
1: Um, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we're going to, to get to all of those issues, I think, but first just to lay out, I know that you have done so much work on title IX, Um, and for most people, title IX and the issues surrounding accusations of sexual assault kind of burst into their political consciousness, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings. Right. Um, And I think that's maybe the first time that a lot of the nation got a chance to see how damaging the standard of mere accusation can really be um, to somebody who's potentially uh, innocently accused and is innocent of what he or she was accused of. Um, the department of education recently announced that they are reviewing the, um, the changes that Bessie DeVos and the department of ed under Trump made to the title IX regulations surri- surrounding due process. Uh, I know that you spent a ton of time actually litigating under first the o- Obama standards. And then, um, also in, in more recent times, um, you know, how has that changed, you know, d- describe what the situation was before these regulations were changed, and what kinds of due process violations were actually happening on campuses um, under the, the Obama administration standard?
2: Yeah, so, you know, around 2010, there began to be this groundswell of activism around, you know, perception that campuses were not doing enough to address the issue of sexual assault on campus. And that led the Department of Education not only to issue new guidance, but also to just really aggressively begin investigating more schools, um, for, you know, not for violating Title IX specifically by not doing enough to address this issue of student-on-student sexual assault and harassment. Because, you know, I don't, it may be worth backing up here for some people who, who don't necessarily know this, you know, Title IX is a law that prohibits sex discrimination in higher education. Um, and for a lot of people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about now, they associate it with college athletics maybe. Um, but Uh, you know, through a series of court decisions and administrative regulations, sexual harassment, which includes sexual assault, um, has come to be a form of sex discrimination prohibited by Title IX if it's severe enough that it, you know, really limits someone's ability to get an education and if the school knows about it and doesn't do anything about it. So that's why, I mean, a lot of people sort of the first question they ask is, well, why are campuses adjudicating these cases at all? yeah,
0: I is- try to explain it to people and I say, you know, imagine a situation where um there's a series of sexual assaults on campus and the girls or the young women go to the dean and complain about it, and the dean does nothing, and then say, you know, a boy is harassed in some manner or another, and he goes to the dean and the dean immediately investigates. There you have a very clear-cut case of disparate treatment. And so when people ask, well, why how did this come to be considered discrimination? I I try to explain that it's, it's discrimination if the school is treating complaints by women differently than it's treating complaints by men. And so the school has an obligation to, to treat them all equally.
2: Right. Um, And so what happened was this pendulum swing where all of a sudden schools, you know, were, were, trying to appear more aggressive on, on, you know, and cracking down on sexual harassment and assault. But what they did in a lot of instances was simply make it easier to find people guilty, whether or not they were guilty. And they did this by removing important procedural protections like the right to a hearing. Um, And so then what happened after that, was a wave of litigation uh, by students who had been accused um, and argued that they had been denied due process. Um, Or, you know, in the case of private schools, because due process is a constitutional concept that we think of at at public institutions, um, or, you know, the contractual right to a fair process. So you had all this litigation around this. And eventually, Um, The Department of Education under Betsy DeVos decided to take a a really close look at this issue and they really, you know, they did a very thorough um, evaluation. Anyone who remembers that notice and comment period, I mean, you know, they took more than 100,000 comments from the public about um, this issue, and, th- and that was something that distinguished the way the Department of Education handled it um, under DeVos than than the previous administration, because the guidance that the previous administration had issued was issued without any notice and comment. So there was no sort of public input in it on into it whatsoever.
0: Um, I think one of the interesting things when those regulations came out is, you know, how. People on the left went crazy about how the administration's trying to roll back protections for survivors, and half the people who said those things hadn't even read the regulations. I mean, if you really read them, they're quite reasonable, and they're, they're procedures that you would want anybody to have, uh, whether they're both whether they're the accuser or the accused, in a process. Um, you know, You'd want somebody to know what they're being accused of. You'd want both parties to have an opportunity to present their side of the story to a neutral fact finder, um, you know, really simple things. And, and people who actually read the regulations, I think, thought they were very sensible. But now um, the Biden administration came out recently and said they're going to conduct hearings and, and po- po- tor- possibly with the goal of repealing them repealing these regulations. Right,
2: because these regulations were greeted by some as, you know, as a rollback of a victim's rights, which they absolutely weren't, because these due process protections protect the integrity of the whole process, um, and, you know, I think, as you say, they're really quite sensible, but, you know, particularly because of the political climate, I think, just around the Trump administration generally, um, you, you know, they, they sort of were branded as this incredibly harmful thing, and as a result now, um, you know, they're under threat, and, you know, as someone who has handled cases on campus um, where there's a hearing with the right to cross-examination and where there's not, um, there's just no comparison in terms of the ability to really get the truth out there. And that's what we all want these processes to be aimed at doing, is finding the truth, right? I mean, if, if the truth is that someone committed a sexual assault, nobody believe they shouldn't be held responsible. The problem is that, you know, in all of these shortcuts to to make it seem as though they were, you know, taking sexual assault seriously, what really happened is they just sort of started operating these kangaroo courts where it was really impossible. You know, it was like trying to defend yourself with one hand tied behind your back, you know, not being able to see the evidence against you, um, not even sometimes being notified in full of the charges, Um, you know, just things that really were, you know, quite frankly, indefensible. we, and so um, the concern now is that uh, is that you know the they'll repeal these regulations and kick it back to the schools um, to to decide how much due process to give, and almost invariably the answer from the schools is going to be very little because what we've seen since the adoption of the regulations is that schools are trying now to keep as much conduct as they can outside of their Title IX process in order to avoid having to give respondents the protections of the, that Title IX now requires. So, you know, unfortunately I have no doubt that if the regulations are repealed, that, you know, the, the unfair processes are gonna come back across the board.
0: And it's I mean, not I, just I, because- I not to A little bit about both how colleges themselves reacted to these regulations when they came out, as well as what you think might happen um, now, if the Biden administration repeals them, but before we do that, we have a little clip. Um, Inez talked about in the introduction how the, some of these procedures are Kafka-esque. And we have a little clip, which is a trailer from an old movie um, of uh, a movie version of Kafka's The Trial. And this is the trailer, part of the trailer that came out. and I, I'd love you to react to it, Sam.
1: Honestly, I can't remember a single offense that could be charged against me. But the real question is, who accuses me? Can there be any doubt that behind my arrest, a vast organization is at work? An establishment which contains a retinue of civil servants, officers, police, and others, perhaps even hangmen.
0: What do you think of that? Is that that reminiscent of any of the cases you've (laughs) experienced? Well, I think, you know, in
2: some ways, the the sort of mob mentality uh, is making me think you know even more of some of what we're seeing on campus today around the anti-racism issue um, and you know the way that people will just sort of circle the wagons around anyone um, or, or to keep out anyone who doesn't agree with this ideology and and you know this accusation of of racism which it's almost impossible to rebut right because it's you know in some ways a subjective I mean some people might believe it's an objective determination, but it's very hard if someone says you are a racist to prove, no, I am not a racist, right? If that's something that's very difficult to prove because almost anything you say to try to prove it um, to your critics will just be more proof that you are. and so these sort of show trials where you know what, what we see a lot of, and I'm sorry if I'm changing the topic here so you can you can bring me back to the title IX stuff in a minute, but you know what we see a great deal of here and this is what I find really frightening is that you know you'll have a lot of and I have a lot of clients like this faculty who um, will write something um, something for an outside newspaper you know something not in the context of their employment um, that will uh, ruffle people's feathers. Um and this could be about racial issues, it could be about transgender issues, Um, that's another hot topic these days that is getting a lot of people in trouble. And then, you know, it will sort of proceed predictably. A Twitter mob will call for their firing, will start, you know, pressuring the university to do something, and then often the university will say, sort of, wink, wink, well, you know, this person's speech is protected outside the classroom, but, you know, if you're aware of any problems in the classroom, if you feel that this person is biased in the classroom, we want to know about it. And, you know, schools now all have these bias reporting systems, too. So it's it's just a sort of predictable course that these things follow where someone says something unpopular and then, you know, people file bias reports. And then the university says, well, we, we've had all these reports of bias. Surely we have to investigate this. And then, you know, suddenly the person's under investigation, um, and even if ultimately the investigation exonerates them, you know, th- the price of, of having to, you know, go through interrogation and investigation like that is going to be enough to, to keep a lot of people from speaking up in the first place. And it's a really disturbing pattern we're seeing. And so this sort of show trial thing in some ways um, brings that to mind more than anything right now.
1: Absolutely, and and let's just let's just get into it because um, obviously this is such a huge part of your practice now, especially since because um, college campuses largely have have uh, in, in some cases they've returned, but not in full in person classes, and they have all kinds of rules about socialization. Um, some of the the Title IX issues, even though they are super. Um, important changes being made to the law, um, a lot of those Title IX issues, I assume, have, uh, have have had a drop in the number of cases simply because there are fewer ragers for them to happen. I,
2: I, think, I, that is, I think that's true. I mean, if I had to speculate <laughs> as to why, you know, I have so many fewer Title IX cases than I did, you know, a while ago, because, you know, interestingly, I actually started my practice during the pandemic, but typically people with the Title IX accusations, they don't always get brought right away. So, you know, in the early days of my practice, I had a lot of cases that stemmed from incidents that happened before the pandemic. Um, but it's true. I mean, I think the pandemic has really changed the nature of socializing on campus. But I also think we can't underestimate just the right. um, the racial unrest that has been going on since June of 2020. That's just, it's really shifted the focus, too, of um, administrators in particular. So,
1: so let's get into that. I mean, um, the the case du jour, and and there have been so many of these cases, uh, both at the university and K-12 level. Of course, uh, Barry Weiss on her substack published the this piece from Paul Rossi about yes. uh, a private K-12 school, uh, things about flagging students who question ideas in class. I mean, thoroughly Orwellian stuff, to circle back to the first part of this. Yeah. Um, I guess and and then of course what happened to Jody Shaw Hi we saw your comment um, at at Smith <laughs> College um, and and the case Jour seems to be what has happened on Georgetown University campus with regard to a law professor who was having what she thought was a private conversation um, and and uh, saying a. a, a true from her perspective thing about her students, which is that she was actually disturbed to see, um, that African-American students tended to cluster near the bottom in terms of, of, um, their, their, um, Academic results, and she was like concerned about this, and she was was wondering how they could change this fact. Right? right. Um, but that that didn't matter, um, and it appears. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not familiar with some of these procedures. But um, it appears they they totally jettisoned their own usual internal review procedures for cases like this, and they summarily dismissed her. Um, what kind of protections under our our laws whether that's you know under civil rights law or under employment law what kind of protections do people in this sort of situation where they have been accused of of as you said this amorphous charge of racism um and then had their careers either, either fired or, um, they, they have lost the ability to teach classes like Amy Chua, um, or, um, um, I think Kay Heimowitz or, or there have been some other, other cases where they've just been taken off of their classes. Amy um,
0: Wax is another one.
1: Yeah. Amy Wax. There's this long list of, of, you know, what, what legal resource recourse do you have? If you find yourself in this situation and you work for either a public university, so let's, let's separate them out. If you work for a public university, what are your recourses? Um, and then if you work for a private university, what, what can you do legally to fight back against this kind of charge?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to give a very lawyerly answer and say that it really does, unfortunately, depend a lot on the circumstances and the facts, because even at a public university, for example, there's a difference between the faculty member who publishes an op-ed in the local paper, in which case they are speaking as a private citizen on a matter of public concern, and their speech is pretty unambiguously Protected by the First Amendment, and a faculty member who, uh, you know, is speaking in the context of their employment, maybe in class, in which case the degree to which their speech may be protected actually depends on um, the jurisdiction where they are at and what courts have held about. Um, you know, public employee free speech rights in the academic setting. That's actually sort of an open debate uh, among the courts. And there's a split um, about the degree to which, because unfortunately, you know, public employee free speech rights are limited um, because courts, the Supreme Court has held that the government as an employer has a much greater right to restrict the speech of its employees than it does of, you know, its citizens.
0: But Sam, what role does tenure play in this? I mean, it's one thing if you're, you know, a clerk at the United States Post Office and the federal government doesn't want you wearing a shirt that says, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden for president because they don't want to send a political message. It's another thing if you have tenure and you raise a problematic or controversial idea with your students for the purpose of teasing out arguments and debate. Um, so yeah, what role well, does tenure
2: Unfortunately, not enough of a role. I mean, in my experience, at least. You know, I certainly tenured professors, it's a little, you know, the, the school will have to jump through more hoops to fire a tenured professor. But unfortunately, you know, even tenured professors can be fired for cause. And this is where these sort of pretextual investigations and things that I'm talking about come in. I mean, I have an absolutely terrifying case. And, you know, while typically a lawyer can't just reveal the names of their clients, some of my clients actually, you know, work with me in part because uh, you know of my writings and things like that, and the story I'm about to tell you is a, is something that I have written about publicly and identified myself as the client's attorney. So in, in this particular case, you know what I'm telling you is something that's already fully in the public record, and that he has you know encouraged me to write and speak about. I represent a professor named Charles Nagy at the University of Central Florida, who um I'm trying to think now, I guess it was a year and. If the investigation was last summer, so I guess it was it was around the time of of George Floyd. so you know May or June of 2020 he posted some tweets and his Twitter account was not affiliated with the university at all. He didn't identify himself as affiliated with the university. Um, but he tweeted some things that uh, upset people about you know the existence you know that affirmative action being black privilege and you know things that you and I might not agree with, but things that were well within the mainstream of political discussion and that he was well within his rights as a citizen. To be commenting on, and this um, you know angered a lot of people, and so a campaign started trending on Twitter hashtag UCF fire him, and uh, in response to that UCF University of Central Florida, which is a public university, actually um, posted something on its website of exactly the kind of thing I said to you, well, you know, we're appalled by this. And if if you've ever experienced bias or discrimination Mm -hmm. in the classroom, we want to know about it. And so, you know, following this public solicitation of complaints, hundreds of people from, you know, classes spanning back 15 years started saying, oh, yes, actually, you know, he really said things in the classroom that were inappropriate. Now, he's someone who teaches, very controversial topics that I think, you know, it would be very difficult for any faculty member to teach in this climate. He teaches, he's a psychologist and he teaches cross-cultural psychology and sexual behavior. Okay. So, I mean, his classes are a minefield and he covers these issues with really refreshing frankness. Um, and he really tries to teach students to think for themselves and challenges students to back up their opinions with facts. Um, and his blunt teaching style has, has ruffled feathers along the way, um, and that's been reflected in some of his evaluations, but his evaluations have largely been stellar and to the extent that students haven't liked him, it's because of his sort of blunt teaching style that, that the school has always known about. Um, and yet, this man was subjected to nine hours of interrogation and then a seven month investigation after which he was fired, for things that are entirely, in my opinion, and I hope one day in a court's opinion we will find, protected by academic freedom. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, if they're really out to get you, tenure is not a guarantee. I mean, it may be more helpful. I think, you know, where tenure may be more helpful is if you have to challenge what your school has done to you in court. Because certainly, you know, if you are an adjunct, you know, adjuncts and lecturers and things like that, legally speaking, just don't have as many rights because they're often on just sort of one year, you know, one year contracts that have to be renewed every year. So um, someone who without tenure um, who is fired may have less legal recourse, um, but in this climate, if if the university is out to get you, they're going to get you, tenured or not. And that's you know, it's it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is.
1: Actually, I'd, I'd like to ask about this climate, right? Um, because unfortunately. You know, the, the world is, fortunately or unfortunately, the world is not a courtroom, right? And we saw this, um, not to get re-into the Title IX issues, but we see this, What we saw it play out with Brett Kavanaugh and those types of issues. We, You can completely damage someone's life um, and the normal protections that would be available if you were accused of something in a criminal court are not available to you. Um, you know, where, where can you give us hope in terms of, because you do successfully defend your clients under... Um, employment discrimination or under, under, um, you know, uh, the contract they had or academic freedom grounds. Um, but I'd like to read a quote from, um, professor Abu Oda. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, she is also writing about this Georgetown, um, incident. She said, terror and dread fill academic workers, professors, and staff alike. It is everywhere. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, how the interplay between culture and law works in this case, uh, because we see all these kinds of, of um, surveys, for example, that 65% of Americans are afraid to speak about their political views. This goes well beyond the campus, right? They're afraid to speak about their political views. Um, and we see uh, a corresponding disturbing rise in, as particularly students and young people who are willing to use violence. So one in five in a Brookings Institute poll, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, showed that one in five students on campus think that violence is an appropriate response to offensive speech, right? Um, there is this climate that completely chills speech. Even, you know, all you need is, is a couple high profile cases like this, particularly on your own campus to really terrify both students and professors out of expressing their their opinion so i mean what hope can you give me in that regard that um you know that perhaps the law and uh, having a few of these high profile clients that you've had and and sort of defending them in in the four walls of the courtroom will have an impact on the larger culture that is is making it i mean not to to go off on a a little rant here but uh, my family comes from communist Poland. Um, I was born here, thankfully. Um, but my family comes from communist Poland. And, you know, yes, you hear about like the Stalinist purges and and especially early in the revolution, they had, um, you know, the actual gulags and you get sent to Siberia, right? <laughs> my, my grandfather got sent to Siberia. But by the time it gets to my parents' generation, um, yes, if you continued to be a political agitator, you might end up in jail or in the gulag or, you know, you might see actual actually one of the more popular consequences was apparently institutionalizing people is insane, right? So. Um, But you don't need any of that. That was actually, to some extent, more minor by the time you get to the 50s, 60s, right? Um, Primarily, people were kept in line with exactly something like this, where you would lose your job. And if you were, for example, a professional person for your whole life, you would find that you were suddenly unable to put food on um, your, your family's table by anything other than digging ditches, for example, and that all of your personal contacts would abandon you because, um, you had been marked as, as sort of a opposition in opposition to the regime and opposition to the people. Right. Um, it almost reminds me of that, this climate where you just, you, you've got to imagine that people are filled with dread as this professor says at being marked out for a stray comment, um, declared a racist. And then even if you do win in court, right? Um, you, you can't get the respect of your profession back. You can't get your good name back or your reputation back. I mean, how, give me some hope here. Like, how can, how can well, the well, cult save us from ourselves? Let Here's me just think in
2: for a second. Say, By the way, hi, Tom Rossley. I see your comment.
1: <laughs> so
0: true. Toxic parents. Looking yep. for reasons to ground you. That actually brings up a question. Tom I
2: has, if you, if you don't know Tom, he, he is a warrior for, for justice on campus
0: and has been for many years. So, well, it's nice to meet you virtually. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I think Inez's point is a really important one because not everybody is going to go through the ultimate punishment of the gulag or being fired even, right? So so you have Amy Chua who had her small group class taken away, or you have Amy Wax and yes. alma mater, Penn, who, you know, she's not allowed to teach first year students or she wasn't for a correct. Right. Correct. Those I types. call
2: this the death by a thousand cuts strategy and it's actually increasingly popular because I think, you know, schools realize very often um, that they can't just out and out fire someone for their free speech. So they take these little steps. Oh, you know, we're just going to offer students another section of your course. Um, or even though we never actually have and historically have had enough students to fill two sections of this course or, you know, so on and so forth, uh, you know, and, and this is a real problem. Um, You know, what I wanted to say, Inez, is I think before we talk about how the courts can save us, I think it really has to start with personal courage. I mean, I think in some ways we need to sort of commit to collectively giving ourselves hope um, by by speaking out. I mean, there is safety in numbers and and, and there are organizations being founded like the Academic Freedom Alliance, which is a group that I am doing work with. Part of the mission of which is to be sort of a NATO for embattled professors—you know, all for one and one for all—and if you know if one member is attacked, all members will speak up um, in their defense. Um, and a lot, honestly, of the work that people in this movement are doing behind the scenes, um, and and at no cost. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you know, there's just there's really a movement that's growing uh, up to to fight back against this, um, and a lot of people are spending a lot of time just finding places for these people to land after they've been canceled, right? Okay. You want to speak up and lose your job? We'll give you a fellowship here. We'll do this for you. We'll find you a, you know, you, will, because, you know, people need to be emboldened to speak up because, you know, Jordan Peterson, actually, and you, you mentioned Paul Rossi, um, the teacher at Grace Church School who published a, an essay yesterday on Barry's uh, website. And, you know, Paul said, he's speaking up in part because he knows that a lot of other people can't, you know, um, that they feel that they can't risk their jobs, they can't. um, And Jordan Peterson tweeted Barry's um, thing out yesterday with a comment, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, but it was essentially, you know, if a thousand teachers stood up and said what Paul said, even if a hundred teachers stood up and said what Paul said, This would end, this would collapse in on itself. Um, And it's really the fear, I think, I think it's really at the moment, and I say at the moment because I think that, you know, once a generation of students is sort of educated in this ideology, you know, we may have more sort of true believers. But I think right now, the number of what I will call real true believers, the people for whom this is, you know, nothing short of a religion, honestly, is, is a small minority of people. And then there's a much larger group of people who are going along with it for sort of careerist reasons. Um, you know, either when I say careerist, I mean, administrators who think they can build their career on doing this or people who are doing it out of, fee- going along out of fear because they can't afford to lose their jobs. Um, And I think that if more people speak up, this will collapse in on itself. It simply isn't sustainable. So, before, before we get an army of the canceled,
1: yeah, eventually so they, they return even... as zombies. <laughs> it's
2: true. There was an article, and I think it was like from a year ago or more now, but I forget where it was. But it, the headline was like, All these people we canceled are now hanging out together. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember
1: that actually. Yeah, I was like, um, They're having parties,
2: <laughs> and it's really true. I mean, without you know, being able to divulge, you know, the identity of my clients and things like that. I'm just, I'm always shocked to find out sort of who knows each other and to be like, oh, wait, this person knows that person and this person's been talking to that person because there really is. I mean, it's the number of, there was a great tweet months ago by someone, you know, I I don't know who it was by, but essentially said something like, I can't wait till 70% of the population's been canceled and we reach herd immunity, (laughs) right? Because at some point, um, so many people are going to have been canceled over this stuff that it's just, you know, th- the fact that you got fired from your position as a teacher for challenging, you know, for asking a question in a, in a white affinity group session on, you know, white privilege uh, is is not going to be notable, right? Because it's just going to have happened to so many people. Um, but in any event, uh, to get back to what I was saying, I mean, I think, look, I do think this is going to go through the courts. And I actually think, um, you know, and this is, maybe a place where we can bring together what we were talking about a little bit with Title IX and some of what's happening on campus with, um, with the racial stuff. Because I think that in many instances, um, there is racial discrimination happening. And I also think there's a racially hostile environment being created. Um, you know, I mean, look, you see a case like Jody Shaw's, right? An employee who's forced to go to trainings where she's, you know, it's demanded of her that she uh, speak about personal views on race and things like that. I mean, these are things that can create a racially hostile environment. So I think that in the years to come, much like after the excesses of Title IX, we started to see lawsuits by by people saying, "Well, wait a minute, this this discriminates against me as a male student on the basis of my sex," and I'm protected too. I think we are going to start to see lawsuits stemming from what really is a racially hostile environment that's been create being created on a lot of campuses and in schools and in workplaces. Um, I think parents are going to bring these lawsuits on behalf of their children. And one way to bring together all of the things that we're talking about, because we were also talking about sort of COVID and the impact of that on all of this, is that. One thing that COVID has done is it has prompted a lot of parents to actually see what their kids are learning in school, right? Because one of the problems with, you know, this sort of anti-racism ideology is if you're not steeped in this, right? And you hear anti-racism, you think, great, I want my kid to be anti-racist. I I don't Mm -hmm. want my kid to be racist. Right. And so if you see, you know, online that your kid might be learning about this, you're not going to necessarily think anything about it. You get an email from your kid's teacher today. We talked about racism. But if you're overhearing a Zoom session where your kid is being read a book about white privilege or what, you know, parents are getting more involved and more concerned because they're hearing what their kids are being exposed to. And I think in some kids, in some cases, their kids are being exposed to a hostile environment. And I think we're gonna start to see cases stemming from that.
1: So, so I do expect, I, sorry, just, go ahead. I, I just wanted to ask you maybe to elaborate a little bit. Do you think in so many cases we see, or at least have seen, um, pieces of the Civil Rights Act uh, being used in ways that I think are are wholly contradictory to its original purpose, right? Um, but are we are we at the point where uh, this stuff has gotten so out of control, whether with regard to sex or race? Um, that we actually could see some protections uh, being created uh, again to, to your point about the racially hostile environment um, in, in public institutions or in title nine, the, what I, I am probably messing up, whether it's a test or a standard, but the, um, the standard that then judge Barrett promulgated, right. Um, if you could speak a little bit to that and the change that it made in terms of actually accused men standing up and saying, um, you know the, the the wholly unfair standards you're applying to us as a sex in these cases is actually discrimination under Title IX. I mean, could we see right. start to see these civil rights statutes statutes actually being used to protect us from some of this stuff?
2: Yes, I think we I think we can and we will. And I mean, look, I think unfortunately that it's going to be somewhat politicized as the Title IX stuff is, and that you know it's going to depend on the judge and the court. Um, But look, you know, as with Title IX, the Civil Rights Act, I mean, you are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. You're not only not allowed to discriminate on the basis of certain races, you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race. And I think not in every instance, but in some instances, I think what's happening is discriminatory. I think racially segregated. I mean, you know, they're being called affinity groups um, as if that somehow makes it, you know, more innocuous. Separate graduation. Segregated but also mandatory segregated meetings. Oh, we're gonna talk about race today. White and white and white passing, that's what it always is. White and white passing students and faculty mm-hmm. are gonna go to this room. Uh, you know, BIPOC students are gonna go to that room. That is racial segregation. And I, I personally don't think it's legal. And I think a court is gonna have to find it's not legal. But where the two issues that I'm talking about come together is that we're gonna have to get enough people with the courage to come forward and bring these lawsuits, right? Because I talk to a lot of people who uh, are want to challenge what's happening, but they don't want their child to be harmed. You know, they don't want um, the the blowback from their community. They don't want. So, you know, people. It's going to take personal courage. Um, and I think that this battle can be won in the court of public opinion. I think this battle can be won in courts of law, but it can't be won unless people are willing to come forward and take take the risk, honestly. And I know that's a lot to ask of people, right? I mean, that's hard. Uh, So I'm not saying that lightly, but I think that, you know, what's happening right now in society is extremely serious. And I think that, um, you know, we need to have, you know, people like Paul Rossi who published his piece in in subsec History. And we, you know, we need to have people coming forward and blowing the whistle and giving others the courage to do the same. Um, and I think the more people I think that it will have a snowball effect that the more people come forward, the more other people are going to feel comfortable coming forward too. because if you feel like you're the only one and you're just out there all alone twisting in the wind, I mean, look, there are people with that kind of courage. but you know, we need we need lots of people.
0: Here's something I want to ask you about that that was sort of prompted by um, your friend Tom was it who who raised a comment saying, that it's like having a bunch of overbearing parents looking for reasons to ground you, that that's what it's like being on a college campus today. And I think that's particularly true with COVID, right? So COVID has set up a situation where there are a lot more rules about what you can do socially. Um, and frankly, most kids are violating them, particularly if they live off campus because they're not natural, right? And right. so um, as more kids go back in the fall, I think it'll be interesting to see what what concerns me is sort of the disparate enforcement of COVID rules based on some of this woke, um, you know, stuff going on on campus. So in other words, you know, student A and student B might both violate a social distancing rule by having 11 instead of 10 people in their suite, but... Only the person who's the prominent member of the Republican club gets brought up on charges of violating the social distancing rule. Or only the person who's spoken out, um, you know, or written a column in the paper about, you know, sexual assaults on campus or written a column, you know, supporting one candidate or another in an election, they're the ones that are getting brought up on these charges. And... I have two kids. Well, I have one that just graduated from college and two that will be in college in the fall. And what I tell them all the time is these COVID rules are super strict, but you have to be extra careful because you have opinions that people don't like. Right. And therefore, that will become an excuse for them to prosecute you for COVID violations. Have you been seeing that act? Is that just a paranoid fear of mine or have you actually seen that happening?
2: Well, it's funny, you know, I myself have not had many of the COVID cases, although I know a lot of my fellow campus disciplinary lawyers have Um, and, you know, I know one of them actually won a a temporary restraining order recently against NYU, which has had particularly draconian um, rules, but I actually, I had a a really interesting case that was sort of the intersection of COVID and and all of this free speech stuff where a student, and I can't, I can't talk about what college it was at and everything. but a student was uh, admonished by another student for not having a mask on outside and said to the student, look, if you're so afraid of... Co- sh-. And then the student said to him, look, you, know, you gotta put your mask on, we don't all wanna have to go home in two weeks. And the student said, well, if you're afraid of COVID, go home. And this student, it turns out, and it was actually unbeknownst to the other student because it happened in the dark, was a student of color. And this student was brought up on charges that saying go home to a person of color Violates their dignity and integrity. Um, so this was this intersection of of COVID and um, all of this, you know, sort of woke stuff. But you know, I think it's what you're saying about, you know, what what I find interesting too is I think in the COVID era, everybody and you know on college campuses and elsewhere has gotten used to living under a lot of rules, right? And. Yeah.
0: But more rules give bureaucrats more power. That's
1: right. So if you have more rules, if everybody's violating the rules, right, um, it leaves the door open for political prosecution. Obviously, this is not prosecution in the court of law. But um, if you have a situation which, you know, a large percentage of the population is in violation of a rule or a law then who gets selected right, for that?
2: Tra- exactly. Well, that's like the issue with the affirmative consent rules on campus, right? I mean, under an affirmative consent rule, if you don't, you know, ask, if if, you, if there's not sort of an affirmative yes, right, instead of a no means no standard, it's a yes means yes standard. So if you don't ask for and get explicit consent at every stage of a sexual encounter, then the encounter is non-consensual. The problem is that's literally every human being who has ever had sex has violated that rule so then the question is who's going to get prosecuted right i mean right. that it, all that's left is who's going to get prosecuted um because everybody has violated the rule but i think also you know people are going to have to remember once we come out of covid that you know yes perhaps more rules were justified by a public health emergency. but when we're not in a public you know we don't want people just to get acclimated to being told what to do and then suddenly acquiesce to rules that you know are overbearing, even absent a public health emergency because we know that schools love to make overbearing rules. Um, so you know but but Tom's comment was was interesting too about sort of the toxic parents, because what I really see, the dynamic I really see on campus now between students and the administration, and this is one that I find, you know, fascinating and alarming, is, you know, it used to be in loco parentis, okay, that the administration is acting like the parents and telling the students what to do, but now I liken the administration to the parent who wants to be their kid's best friend, so instead of, instead of setting limits just says okay whatever you want you know for example i mean Haverford college right when their students went on strike they shut down they canceled classes for professors canceled classes for weeks on end and the administration supported this you know i was recently involved in a case where you know the the university uh was going to release information in response to student demands and this was information that really had no business being released it was confidential information and that you know the administration said to me well do you just, what do you, what we're just supposed to tell our students? Yes, we took care of it. And I said, yes, yes, that's exactly, what, you know, we have to tell our students, no, you don't, you don't, you know. But these administrators now are so terrified of upsetting their students. Um, and they're so, they're terrified of the, particularly their activist student bodies that they will, they'll give in to any demand. So I feel like they've gone from, in some ways, being the overbearing helicopter parents, but or the parents, to the parents who want to be their kids' best friends. So they'll let them do anything. But of course, they only want to be some of their kids' best friends. And that's (laughs) part of the problem.
1: Parental favoritism, always a controversy. Exactly.
0: I think another thing that ties all of these issues together, whether it's, you know, racial controversies, or free speech, or, or sexual assault, or sexual harassment on campus, is the process, right? And going back to not just due process issues, but, but the way that campuses, the campus administrative tribunals that deal with all of these things, COVID violations, or, you know, and even if it's cheating, right? So you have you have this sort of parallel justice system and this campus administrative state that's adjudicating all these supposed wrongdoings. And in many contexts, not just the Title IX context, these these really are kangaroo courts. And, what anybody, you know, I think, who has kids or friends who have been caught up in these tribunals understands, is that they're not really interested in finding out the truth of what happened, whatever the situation exactly. was. They're they're interested in setting up some sort of restorative justice model where what they want the, the, the student to do is fall on his or her sword, admit wrongdoing, self-flagellate, you know, write an open letter to the public, apologize right. for whatever the violation was. And then the university feels good about themselves because they've, you know, they've created a more virtuous student, a more virtuous campus. Um, And I think really that's what all of this has in common is these sort of kangaroo courts. Yeah. So I I think on that note, um, I'd like to wrap up by playing a little clip um, from a video by Capital Cities of the song Kangaroo Court, which I think will illustrate a lot of these problems that we're seeing on campuses today. So thanks for joining us, Sam. Cheers to you and all the good work. Cheers.
1: You. Thank you so much for coming on, Sam. Of it's course, been wonderful. Of always nice
0: to see you. And anyone who's in trouble on their campus needs to call Sam. Call now. her. Go to a lawyer. <laughs> if my child were in, ca- in trouble on campus, I would send them to Sam. So there oh, you go. Thank you. And, and with that, we will we will take it out with Cap Cap Cities Kangaroo Court. Sexy, I commit the crime of wasting time.
1: to bring back the uh although this song was apparently I looked it up while we're uh out and it's it was uh produced in 2013 I believe so I was gonna say we're throwing it back to the era before the Obama guidance on title nine <laughs> but not quite because I believe <laughs> it's concurrent um anyway thank you so much for joining us uh at at the bar um and thanks to all of our listeners for coming back. Um, I hope you will join us for these monthly installments. We may, if, if, if our fans clamor, we may bring it up to once every week. Um, have some guests before. We've, we've discussed uh, all kinds of things that are at the intersection of politics, culture, and law. And uh, that's what we'll continue to do at At The Bar. Um, so thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me. Nice.